This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Stand with Christ. In the first half, Barbara A. Heisey and Marilyn S. Bateman share their addresses, Grow Toward Christ and Being One with Christ. Then in the second half, John P. Hoffman speaks on Prophet, Priest, and King. I'm humbled to be standing here today where so many prophets and servants of our Savior have stood. My primary desire, besides wanting to sit down where you are, (laughs) is to say what the Lord wants me to say. I pray that both you and I may feel the Spirit and be edified. When I was 21, I married my eternal companion, although I didn't know that at the time because we were not members of the Church. By the time I was 31, we had joined the Church, had four children, and my husband was very, very sick and was unable to ever work again. We felt prompted that I should go to nursing school so that I could support the family. So I started out as a nurse's aide at a local hospital and then went on to get an associate, a bachelor's, a master's, and doctoral degrees in nursing. I tell you these things not to boast of myself because I'm no different than you are, but for two reasons. First, to tell you that none of those worldly accolades were possible without the Lord's help, love, and guidance. He never left our side or stopped reaching out for us. And secondly, I want to talk about choices. I've been privileged as a nurse and through many callings to be with individuals and their families at very difficult times. When a loved one just had open-heart surgery, after an adolescent suicide, when a family member hit bottom and they were admitted to a psychiatric unit or a drug treatment program, when sexual abuse was discovered toward children, or in someone's home when a loved one was dying, to name just a few experiences. At each juncture, I noticed the choices people made. I have spent hours talking to people who were so angry because things didn't turn out the way they wanted, or they became offended by someone, or they were angry with God. Each time these people made a choice, often they would ask me, Why me? My intent is not to minimize the tribulations that we go through. Our trials are exquisitely powerful and painful in so many ways and very genuine. But the right to choose how we will respond to that adversity is totally ours. So the question remains, why not you? The Lord loves you, and you have the potential to be stronger and more useful in His service. Or you can choose to let this trial drive a wedge between you and the Savior, exactly what Satan hopes for. We are masters of our choices. In fact, we have already fought a war over the right to choose. We were all there in the pre-mortal existence, in the Grand Council in Heaven. We were not asked which plan was the best for our progression. We were asked, Whom shall I send? Jesus said He would obey and follow the plan, which required Him to perform the Atonement. Jesus volunteered because of His great love for His Father and for us. Throughout His mortal life, Jesus repeatedly gave us his example of his choice, always expressing to the Father, Thy will be done. Satan, on the other hand, 
sought to take away our freedom to choose, which would entirely negate the plan of happiness. In addition, he wanted all the glory for himself. Heavenly Father chose Jesus. Satan chose to be angry, and a war followed, a battle that is still raging. One-third of our brothers and sisters chose to follow Satan and were cast out, denied the right to receive mortal bodies. All of us here chose the Savior and are here now to be proved and tested to see who we will choose to follow in this life. When challenges come, and come they must because that's why we're here, we choose how we will react. Will we grow toward Christ and our eternal home or not? I have watched as some have chosen to fall away as they succumb to their feelings of being hurt, offended, angry, or when confronted with others' abuse, unfaithfulness, illness, addiction, suicide, and death. Yet when others faced with the same issues choose to allow that trial to stretch them, allowed the Savior to carry them through the trial, sought the Spirit to guide them, and felt of the Savior's love and atonement. Through all of these times, I have noticed that as individuals struggled with whatever was facing them, that if they turned to Jesus Christ and trusted in Him, they were successful in finding the Savior, finding peace, and finding their way. The outcome may not have been always what they wanted, but one thing was certain, they grew stronger, more loving, more trusting, more obedient, and filled with faith, they moved closer to the Savior. Coming here to our second state is based on choices. If you're going to make a choice, there must be the possibility of more than one choice. How can we appreciate happiness unless we have also felt sadness? There must be opposition in all things. We give up our eternal right to choose when we say, He or she made me angry. I encourage you not to give away your right to choose by handing that power over to someone else. No one can make you angry. You make a choice to respond by being angry or by taking offense. But you can also choose to make the effort to find out what is really going on with that other person and to try to understand their behavior or at least agree to disagree. We make hundreds, maybe even thousands of choices daily. Some may be insignificant, such as what you chose to wear today. However, that same decision might be very significant if you choose to wear shorts and there's a blizzard going on outside. Our choices define who we are. It was Alma and the Spirit who converted me to the gospel over 30 years ago. My husband and I felt strongly that we should bring up our daughter with some type of religious background. As we investigated many churches, the Lord sent people to talk to us about the LDS Church. It was back in the days before the three-hour block schedule we now have, and every time we went to the local church building, there was no one there. We thought, this is strange. The Lord sent a member of the church to my husband's place of business in Los Angeles to talk to him about food storage. At the same time, a co-worker and I talked about our desire to find a church, and we found out that she had an LDS babysitter. So we arranged to have a dinner at my co-worker's home and to invite the LDS couple so she, they could teach us more about the Church. At the last minute, the LDS couple couldn't make it, but they sent the ward mission leader, and we got to see the film Meet the Mormons, the film strip. 
But we lived in a different mission. We wanted the full-time missionaries to come teach us the gospel, but our names were lost several times. Finally, our missionaries came. We opened the door and asked them, What took you so long? I will be eternally grateful to Elder Mulford and Elder Wardle for their choice to go on a mission. As I read the Book of Mormon for the first time, Alma 32.27 came so powerfully to me. If you can even experiment upon my words, I could do that. While the choice to join the Church brought some opposition from our extended families, it was and still is the best decision we ever made. After we joined the Church, we continued to nourish the seed. Challenges came—poverty, the birth of a baby with a handicap, my husband becoming disabled, my going to nursing school and working to support our family. When I graduated as an RN with an associate degree, I was pregnant. We were told the name of that child, but he was stillborn a couple of days before I was to take the National RN NCLEX exam. The Lord was there to help us through. We were taught about unconditional love, survival, obedience, submissiveness to the will of the Lord, and that the Lord was always near to lift us up. Occasionally I wondered why the Lord was not as near, and I realized He was not the one who had moved away I had. I taught early morning seminary at 6 a.m. for four years. I love Lehi's vision. When I taught early morning seminary, one of my students painted a full mural about 8 feet by 10 feet on my living room wall of Lehi's vision. It was a great reminder to me of God's love for us, how He desires for us to come home, and actually shows us the way to return. Lehi's vision is really a schematic or blueprint for living in this our second estate. To reach the tree of life and taste of the love of God, we must choose to walk in the straight and narrow path by holding fast to the iron rod. Did you notice that you cannot sit down on the iron rod or the straight and narrow path? You must press forward. Nephi tells us you must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God in all men. If you shall press forward, feasting, not snacking, upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, he shall have eternal life. Many will not even enter onto this path, the tall and spacious building people, or they may start on the path, but when times get tough, for one reason or another, they choose to go off the path. And even those who do make it to the tree of life and taste of God's love may respond to the mocking people on that tall and spacious building by becoming ashamed resulting in their choice to leave and suffer the consequences of not enduring to the end. When we left Richmond, Virginia, we wallpapered over that mural. I have often wondered what the new owners thought when they took the wallpapers down and saw Lehi's vision. <laughs> we had a son, Seth, who was born with Down syndrome. He loved everyone and would never allow anyone in his presence to get upset or to use the word stupid. He would always tell us, Calm down, relax. One day when he was 20, he came to me and he said that he wanted to go home. I said, Silly, you are home. He said, No, I want to go to my home far away. 
Shortly afterward, he was diagnosed with leukemia and was dead seven months later. In those seven months, Seth spent his time helping us to get ready for him to leave. He decorated his entire room from floor to ceiling and all four walls with pictures of rainbows to remind us that God loves us. There were many miracles during those seven months. I will mention only one. My oldest son David and his beautiful wife Leah were getting married at this time in the Washington, D.C. temple. Seth was very ill, and we knew that he probably didn't have much longer to live. It was a difficult choice for me to choose which son to be with that day, with my son as he was married for time and all eternity, or with my son who was dying. I stayed with Seth, and my husband went with David to the D.C. temple. Seth wanted to go to that reception that night very, very badly. We decided to let him go just for a few moments and even planned to take him in a wheelchair as he was so weak and had difficulty keeping food down. Seth would have none of that. When he got to the reception, he ate what he wanted, and he danced with all the young women there. He didn't want to leave for hours later, but eventually we took him home where he immediately was very sick again, and he died a day later. I learned so much from Seth, particularly about unconditional love. We chose to look for the spiritual and positive things from this experience, and we found it. Over the 27 years my husband was sick, I noticed that he became stronger spiritually as his physical health declined. He never complained. It still amazes me that despite the literally hundreds of doctor visits, procedures, hospitalizations, surgeries, he did not see himself as sick until the last three months of his life. He always looked for the positive despite being in constant pain. He had some partial amputation of toes, and when people would ask him how he felt, he would say, Well, if the Lord's going to take me a piece at a time, I'm glad he started at that end. (laughs) which was a quote he heard was attributed to Elder Bruce R. McConkie. He was always looking forward to his renewed, perfect body. Even in the last two days of his life, when our dear bishop came to our home and asked him if he had any message for our ward family, Joel quickly replied, He lives. But not everyone who has trials seeks for the positive aspects of that learning. A woman I knew came to me complaining that her husband had left her and they were getting a divorce. And she said, I've been active in the Church, always paid my tithing, always accepted any calling, and this is what I get. She chose to leave the Church because she could not look beyond her pain to the lessons to be learned. She chose to be bitter. She chose to look for the negative, and she found it. Sometimes we don't make such great choices. The Lord loves us so much that we can, through applying the power of the Atonement, repent. Accessing the Atonement on a daily basis, even a minute-to-minute basis sometimes, is necessary. We don't have to be perfect. After all we can do, the Savior does the rest. When we repent, we choose to be changed, to be spiritually stronger, and to come closer to the Savior. Choosing to repent, while it does not take away the consequences of our choice, it does turn us around and point us in the direction of the Savior. Elder 
Jeffrey R. Harlan taught, quote, The soul that comes unto Christ, who knows his voice and strives to do as he did, finds a strength, as the hymn says, beyond his own. The Savior reminds us that he has engraven us upon the palms of his hands. Considering the incomprehensible costs of the crucifixion and the Atonement, I promise you he is not going to turn his back on us now. When he says to the poor in spirit, Come unto me, he means he knows the way out and he knows the way up. He knows it because he has walked it. He knows the way because he is the way. Christ is our GPS system that will guide us successfully back home if we will but choose to follow him. We must, as we have been told many times in the scriptures, choose you this day whom you will serve. Elder Boyd K. Packer taught, quote, Our lives are made up of thousands of everyday choices. Over the years, these little choices will be bundled together and show clearly what we value. The crucial test of life does not center in the choice between fame and obscurity, between wealth and poverty. The greatest decision of life is between good and evil. There really are only two choices. We are either for or against the Savior. The Savior himself said, He that is not with me is against me. You cannot sit on the fence, be neutral or lukewarm in this war. If Satan can get you to sit on the fence and be lukewarm, you are essentially deactivated, out of the battle raging for the souls of men, and not valiant. You have not chosen the Savior. In Doctrine and Covenants 76-79, we are warned that if we are not valiant in the testimony of Jesus Christ, we will inherit the terrestrial, not the celestial glory. However, as Nephi tells us, we are always free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men or captivity and death according to the power of the devil. As we come to love the Savior more and more, we realize that he has given us so much, lending us the very air we breathe, as Mosiah tells us. He has given us scriptures, prayer, the Holy Ghost, the priesthood, relief society, family, prophets, general authorities, stake and ward leaders, and each of us to help us to return home. As Elder Neil A. Maxwell taught, quote, Our wills constitute all we really have to give God anyway. The usual gifts and their derivatives we give to Him could be stamped justifiably returned to sender. The vast majority of you have chosen to be here today at this time because of your love of the Savior. You want to be spiritually strong. Me too. President Thomas S. Monson said, We need not feel that we must be without fault in order to receive the blessings of God. He will take us from where we now stand if we will come to Him. He will build us up spiritually, and He will build us up with confidence in ourselves. You may not think of yourselves as leaders in the cause of Zion. But you are. Your example influences those around you. Your choices influence their choices. You are here at this time for a reason. President Ezra Taft Benson said, quote, Each day we personally make many decisions that show where our support will go. The final outcome is certain. 
the forces of righteousness will finally win. What remains to be seen is where each of us personally, now and in the future, will stand in this fight and how tall we will stand. Will we be true to our last day's foreordained mission? Yes, these are difficult times we live in. Yes, we have struggles to wade through. Yes, as President Henry B. Eyring has said, as the forces around us increase in intensity, whatever spiritual strength was once sufficient will not be enough. But President Eyring goes on to say, and whatever growth in spiritual strength we once thought was possible, greater growth will be made available to us. We are not alone if we choose not to be. The Savior will always be reaching out to us to lift us up. I would never have chosen the trials that I have been given, but I know that the Lord knows the beginning from the end. He loves me, and He loves you, and knows exactly how to strengthen us. I am very glad that I had those experiences because I have learned so much. In fact, the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know. I didn't always make the best choices, but I know that choices are fundamental to our existence and to our success in life. I exhort you to choose to grow toward the Savior. If you do, you will be successful. When we put the Savior first in our lives, everything else literally falls into place. This much I do know. He lives. The Savior knows each of us individually. He knows our name. How great is that? He loves us individually. He saves us individually. He gave His perfect life for us. He wants us to succeed and come home. And He will never, ever stop reaching out after us. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You're listening to Finding Center. We've just heard from Barbara A. Heisey, and now we'll hear from Marilyn S. Bateman for her address, Being One with Christ. My dear friends, there is no question but that we live in the last days. We are witnessing the culmination of the last dispensation where the Lord is bringing His great Latter-day work to its conclusion. From the beginning All the prophets from Adam to our Latter-day Prophets have prophesied and looked to our day. They have done so because it is the time where the work of gathering the families of the earth and the preparation for the second coming of the the Son of God is to be performed. We are continually being tried and tested as individuals and as a Church. We are engaged in a mighty conflict. We are at war. We are enlisted in the cause of Christ to fight against Lucifer and all that is carnal and evil in the world. But our prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, has said, We are engaged in a great eternal struggle that concerns the very souls of the sons and daughters of God. We are not losing. We are winning. We will continue to win if we will be faithful and true. We can do it. We must do it, and we will do it. There is nothing the Lord has asked us that in faith we cannot accomplish. This is the time and season in the Lord's affairs that the greatest generation of young men and women, 
in the history of the world is being called forth. I have often heard President Hinckley refer to the young people of the Church today as being the best that has ever been on the earth. And I would agree with him. I think it's a great blessing to be here at BYU and see the wonderful, noble uh, young people that we have. It is a time for us, though, to stand firm and to rally the banner of our Savior and to declare with unwavering allegiance your loyalty to His great cause. All of us united together, we can do it and we will do it. In Alma 26, 5 and 6, the great missionary Ammon saw our day and explained the need to gather the sons and daughters of God. In verse 6 he says, Yea, they shall not be beaten down by the storm at the last days. Yea, and neither shall they be harrowed up by the whirlwinds, but shall be gathered together in their place that the storms cannot penetrate to them. Yea, neither shall they be driven with fierce winds, whithersoever the enemy listeth to carry them. The way that we are gathered is through the restored gospel and its priesthood and by fully living its precepts. Its purpose is to make us one with Christ and each other. One reason this oneness is important is because of the difficult times we face and will continue to face as the last day storms that Ammon talked about come. Lewis Timberlake uses an analogy in Nature to illustrate this concept. He said, while on tour of California's giant sequoias, the guide pointed out that the sequoia tree has roots just barely below the surface. I exclaimed, that's impossible. I'm a country boy, and I know that if the roots don't grow deep into the earth, strong winds will blow the tree over. Not sequoia trees, said the guide. They grow only in groves and their roots intertwine under the surface of the earth, and when the strong winds come, they hold each other up. There is a lesson here. In a sense, people are like the giant sequoias—family, friends, neighbors, and the church body and other groups. groups should be havens so that when the strong winds of life blow, these people can serve as reinforcement and can strive to hold each other up. If we become one with Christ and each other, then when the storms and the whirlwinds and evil that will be unleashed come down upon us, we will stand and not be wasted. We will achieve oneness with each other only as we seek to be one with Christ. The whole concept of becoming one with Christ which in turn can provide protection, is wonderfully presented in the scriptures through the story of Helaman's stripling warriors. Some sixty years before the coming of the birth of Christ, the Nephites were faced with the evil storm of war. Their liberties were being threatened as the Lamanites saw their destruction. The people of Ammon had joined the Nephites, but because of their oath not to take up weapons of war, they could not help in that way to defend their country. Their young sons were exempt from this oath, and under the leadership of the prophet Helaman, they came to the defense of the Nephite nation. Listen to how these young warriors are described 
In Alma 53, we are first introduced to them. Verse 20 and 21 says that they were all young men. They were exceedingly valiant for courage, strength, and activity. But this was not all. More importantly, they were men who were true at all times. They were men of truth and soberness, for they had been taught to keep the commandments of God and to walk uprightly before him. Helaman describes them as strict to remember the Lord their God from day to day. Yea, they do observe to keep his statutes and his judgments and his commandments continually, and their faith is strong in the prophecies. Even more telling is Helaman rehearsing what these valiant young people said to him. Father, behold, our God is with us. They were one with God, and he will not suffer that we should fall. They knew that God would protect and deliver them. Yes, they had been taught by their mothers to have such a faith in their Savior that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. What were the effects of such great faith in Christ and the oneness that they had with their Redeemer? In Alma 57, 25, 26, we read, Not one soul of them did perish, and we do justly ascribe it to the miraculous power of God because of their exceeding faith in that which they had been taught to believe. There, there was a just God, and whosoever did not doubt that they should be preserved by his marvelous power. In closing, I would like to quote from President James E. Faust's First Presidency message of this month. It is my testimony that we are facing difficult times. We must be courageously obedient. My witness is that we will be called upon to prove our spiritual stamina for the days ahead will be filled with affliction and difficulty. But with the assuring comfort of a personal relationship with God, we will be given a calm courage. From the divine so near, we will receive the quiet assurance, My son and my daughters, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. And then, if thou endure it well, it shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. It is my prayer, my young, valiant brothers and sisters, that we will seek to be one with our Savior, Jesus Christ, by applying the principles of the gospel in our lives and living obediently to his commandments, so that as we live through these last days, our united front will not be penetrated, and we will stand together as true followers of Christ that we may become the sons and daughters of God, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is my hope, and I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Stand with Christ. We've just heard from Marilyn S. Bateman. After the break, we'll return with John P. Hoffman, for Prophet, Priest, and King. This is 
is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Stand with Christ. Next is John P. Hoffman, professor in the BYU Department of Sociology at the time of this address, titled Prophet, Priest, and King. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here this morning with you to discuss a topic that's very important to all of us, and that is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I was baptized, it's been almost 14 years, it will have been 14 years just this next month, I was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but my journey into my baptism began many years earlier. It was on a fall day almost 25 years ago that I was sitting in a hospital waiting room in San Diego, California. My fiance, who soon thereafter became my wife, was scheduled to have surgery to clear out a blockage in her trachea. The doctor was going to attempt a new procedure using a laser to burn away the excess tissue. Now, we see that laser surgery is very common these days, but 25 years ago it was actually quite rare. And although I was worried initially, I only became more worried when the doctor came in and said he had never used a laser before. (laughs) And so the risks seemed to be quite great on various things that might occur. In any event, all went well, obviously. Lynn is here with us today and has no negative consequences from that. One of the things I recall most, and Phyllis, I apologize for bringing you into this without your permission, but I hope you don't mind, but I was actually sitting next to Phyllis, my future mother-in-law, in this waiting room, and I had just met her. I obviously was not a member of the church. Lynn comes from a very strong Latter-day Saint family, and the thing I recall most about having this conversation I had with Phyllis was that she asked me, what do you believe about Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father? And I'm afraid I don't recall exactly what my reply was. I'm sure I fumbled quite a bit, but I doubt if it was a very satisfactory reply. But she must not have thought I was so bad because she let me marry her daughter eventually. But then I realized that I hadn't really thought seriously about Jesus Christ or his Father. So a few years after we married, as I mentioned, she did marry me, I had made little progress in really understanding the Savior and his role in all of our lives. And although I devoted part of mine, I still do devote part of my professional life to studying social and cultural aspects of Christian religions, I had not pursued doctrinal studies, nor had I personalized any of the teachings of the Church. I did go to church uh, somewhat faithfully, but I hadn't become a member yet. But then I had a dream that shook my soul. I was in the entryway of a white building waiting for Lynn. I looked a few feet to my left and saw her with a bearded man. Somehow I knew that she was very close to this man. I immediately thought he was her best friend. And it confused me for a moment. But then he looked at me in a rueful way and walked away. An intense feeling of sadness overcame me, for I realized that he was my wife's friend but he could not be mine. I joined the church a few years later and began a new journey, but I still had a lot to learn. In 2005, my best friend passed away from cancer. His name was Son, and he was not a member of the church, but he was a fine and honorable Christian man with a wonderful family, two young children, and a wonderful wife. A couple of nights before the funeral, I had a dream about him, and if you'll indulge me, For a moment, I'd like to read a description of this dream that I delivered as part of his eulogy. 
During a fitful night's sleep, having just found out that son had passed away to rejoin the Lord, I had a deep desire to see him once more, to make sure he was all right, or perhaps simply to test my faith. I dreamed I was walking along a corridor in a building where I work, and if you want a visual of this corridor, it was actually the Joseph F. Smith building on the second floor northwest corner where the history department is. I remember this quite clearly. But the corridor was dark, and I could just make out a shadow of a person who was facing away from me. And then I realized who that person was. It was my friend's son, and he appeared to be waiting for someone. My first thought was one of fear. I did not want him to be in the dark all alone. So I began to approach him, and as I got nearer, a light began to glow around him and get brighter. It was then that I realized that it was not Son, my friend who was in darkness, it was me. He was bathed in a vivid light that swept me into it. Without saying a word, he turned around and grabbed me in a hug just as I began to weep. I then knew he was there for me, that he was in an eternal light that would never go out. Now, we all know what the source of this light is. According to the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In the Book of Mormon, Alma taught his son Shiblon that the Lord Jesus Christ is the life and the light of the world. Although I have no idea if my dream had a literal quality to it, I like to believe that my friend has entered this light. These episodes from my life, as well as many others, have led me to want to know more about the Savior. This is both an intellectual and spiritual pursuit that requires study and faith. I want to get to know him better, to know about his mortal life, his role in bringing forth the atonement, and his many teachings that we need to understand and follow so that we can achieve true happiness. Therefore, please let me share a small part of this pursuit because I think it has improved my life in ways that I probably don't appreciate enough. We all know that there are many metaphorical and literal names for the Savior. In addition to his mortal moniker of Jesus and his self-ascription as the light of the world, we also know him as the Lord, the Son of God, the Bread of Life, the Living Water, the Lamb of God, the Redeemer, Emmanuel, Jehovah, and by many other titles. Although we regularly use several titles in the Church, I would like to highlight three that are often used together. Perhaps we know these best from the words written by the 18th century Baptist pastor Samuel Medley for the hymn, I Know That My Redeemer Lives. The third verse includes the lines, He lives, and while he lives I'll sing, He lives, my prophet, priest, and king. For some reason not entirely apparent to me, I've always been intrigued by this combination of words. Considering those common uses of these terms, it seems that prophets, priests, and kings are supposed to be subordinate to the Savior. I therefore wish to dig a little deeper and consider how the Lord takes on these roles. First of all, what is the source of this triple combination? Although the terms are common titles for the Savior, they are not used in this particular arrangement anywhere in the standard works. Thus, we must search more broadly to find the origin of this phrase. The historical record suggests that the term prophet, priest, and king as applied to Jesus originated with Eusebius, the bishop of Caesarea in Palestine during the early 4th century. Eusebius wrote, and I quote, that his anointing was divine is proved by the fact that he alone, of all who ever lived, is known throughout the world as Christ. 
and is honored by his worshipers throughout the world as king, held in greater awe than a prophet, and glorified as the only high priest of God. End quote. More than 1,000 years later, John Calvin used the term threefold office to designate these roles taken on by the Lord. Calvin was particularly interested in linking the Jesus of the New Testament with the three offices from the Old Testament that represented God's appointed servants. Yet he also saw that these three sacred offices were exemplified and perfected in Jesus Christ. Others, such as Moses and Melchizedek, may have fulfilled these roles during certain dispensations, but Jesus is the only perfect prophet, high priest, and king anointed to rule on earth and in heaven. One scholar says that when we understand the Savior in these roles, they come into, quote, perfect bloom. Many others have emphasized another name for Jesus that encompasses the threefold office, that of Messiah. As you know, Messiah is the Hebrew word meaning the anointed. The Greek parallel is Christ. Thus, Jesus Christ means Jesus the anointed. In the Old Testament, it was through sacred anointing that prophets, priests, and kings were set apart to perform their duties. They were anointed as a symbol of purification and consecration, being made holy and thus fit to serve God. For instance, we learn that Moses poured the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to sanctify him so that Aaron could perform his priestly duties. The Lord commanded Elijah to anoint Elisha as a prophet. Samuel anointed David to be king even before he took over the throne from Saul. And we learn from the Book of Mormon that kings were anointed among the Nephites and the Jaredites. The Savior was also anointed to conduct sacred duties, perhaps as with his baptism at the hands of John, to serve as an example to others and fulfill all righteousness. Some have pointed out that he was anointed three times, once during the pre-mortal existence and twice during his ministry on earth. Joseph Smith lends support for the pre-mortal anointing to, quote, He, the Lord being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and the anointed Son of God from before the foundation of the world. The two mortal anointings occurred when the Savior was baptized and when Mary poured oil on him at Bethany just prior to his entry into Jerusalem. I'll now examine the three offices that Jesus Christ fulfills prophet, priest, and king. I have two reasons for taking these steps. First, I hope it will help us honor him better, perhaps by understanding a little more what it means to say he is the Messiah. Second, just as with other sacred roles, it's helpful to see how Jesus perfected them, thus providing an exemplar for others. Let me start with Jesus' role as prophet. In simple terms, a prophet is one who represents God to mankind. We learn from numerous passages in the Old Testament in the Book of Mormon that prophets serve as messengers who reveal God's word, call people to repent, teach them to obey God's laws, and prepare them for the coming of the Savior. Thus, we recall that Lehi, following his first recorded vision, went forth among the people and began to prophesy and to declare unto them concerning the things which he had both seen and heard. And it came to pass that the Jews did mock him because of the things which he testified, for he truly testified of their wickedness and their abominations." And when the Jews heard these things, they were angry with him, yea, even as with the prophets of old whom they had cast out and stoned and slain, and they also sought his life that they might take it away. Likewise, Samuel the Lamanite preached repentance in the land of Zarahemla and was run off by disbelievers. 
Whereas Abinadi was executed for teaching God's will for the people and the coming of the anointed one. Thus we see the fate of many of God's messengers, including persecution, mockery, and even death. Just as with prophets before him suffered such tribulations, the Savior experienced widespread rejection of his holy mantle. Two prophets of the Old Testament whose life most directly anticipated the Saviors were Moses and Elijah. It's no coincidence that these two prophets of old appeared during his transfiguration on the mount. Jesus was likened unto Moses by a number of parallel life experiences, including both were tempted by Satan, both were transfigured on the mount, both were saved as infants from certain death, and both confronted powerful political and religious leaders at the risk of their own lives. Like Elijah, Jesus taught using parables. He healed the sick, raised the dead, and suffered rejection and persecution at the hands of his own people. The Savior, like Elijah, also preached to people outside of Israel. Unlike most prophets before his time, the Savior expressed concern for all individuals to conduct themselves according to the laws that he had prepared for them. Yet the Savior transcended the sacred mantles of all previous prophets. While on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah spoke to him about his departure or his exodus. This referred to his impending death and the resurrection, but it also represented the journey that would bring people to God through the atonement. By offering an atoning sacrifice and overcoming death, the Lord surpassed the prophetic roles of both Elijah and Moses. As a theologian Robert Sherman wrote, and I quote, The New Testament clearly portrays Jesus as more than a prophet. He speaks and acts with his own authority and power. He proclaims the kingdom of God. More than that, he is himself the revelation of God's truth and purposes. Indeed, he not only enlightens, but empowers persons to recognize and claim God's truth as their own true meaning and end, and as such, in him, prophecy itself is fulfilled. End quote. Nephi taught that God would raise up a prophet from among the Jews 600 years hence, yet this man would be more than a prophet. He would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, whereas prophets represented God to the people, priests represented the people to God. Priests function as mediators between God and mankind. Understanding the Savior's role as a priest can be difficult in a biblical sense because priests were of the Levitical line, whereas the Savior was descended from the tribe of Judah. Yet we learn in Psalms 110 that the Lord would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the Lord was a priest of an order that predated the Levites. We understand through modern revelation that this involves a distinction between the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood. And we are fortunate to have this information since it is difficult to fully understand the Savior's priestly role without our extra-biblical sources. For example, who was this Melchizedek in whom we find the higher priesthood? The Old Testament briefly mentions that he was the king of Salem, or Jerusalem, and a high priest who blessed Abraham and received his tithing. But if we read inspired scripture, we learn that he also bestowed the priesthood on Abraham and was a man of mighty faith who convinced the people of his kingdom to repent. Because of his great works, Melchizedek was known as the Prince of Peace and the King of Heaven. These titles suggest that he was the Old Testament figure who resembled the Savior most closely. He was a prophet, priest, and king. Much of our understanding of the Savior's role as a high priest of the order of Melchizedek comes from the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. As is well known, 
Paul was writing to a group of Jewish Christians who would have been familiar with the Levitical priesthood and its responsibility for sacrificial rites in the temple. He told his readers that Jesus was the apostle and high priest of our profession. Paul's intent was to show that the Savior in his role as high priest fulfilled and transcended the law of Moses since he offered a perfect sacrifice through his atonement. At the time of Jesus' mortal ministry, the temple high priest was designated in Jewish tradition to represent the Lord. He wore the name of the Lord on his forehead and was the only priesthood member allowed to enter the Holy of Holies and make the blood sacrifice on the annual Day of Atonement. Paul maintained that Jesus was able to save all because he was sinless, unlike the high priests who presided in the temple. Consequently, there was no longer a need for daily sacrifices, first for the priest's sins and then for the people. The blameless Lord, the spotless Lamb of God, whose blood was far superior to any animal's, offered a sacrifice beyond any that a person could offer. It is only through the shedding of his blood and his atoning sacrifice that we may be reconciled fully with Heavenly Father. As Paul wrote in the ninth chapter of Hebrews, But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place having attained eternal redemption for us, and for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. The Savior understands our weaknesses and infirmities. He knows the temptations we face. He has suffered for us. He is thus the perfect high priest, and the perfect mediator for representing mankind to the Father. Yet he is much, much more than this. Unlike other high priests, he was both priest and sacrifice. In fact, his one great sacrifice is of greater eternal worth than all those that have come before. The third part of the threefold office of Christ is king. Of the three, this is probably the Savior's best-known title— We find it in films such as the 1961 epic King of Kings and in our LDS hymn book. Think of the words to I believe in Christ and Jesus of Nazareth, Savior and King. His kingly duties are also easier to understand. We know that Jesus, who lived a mortal life, is the Lord of the Old Testament, the one known as Jehovah. He created the earth and continues to lead his church. Thus, he is our holy leader, our Lord who reigneth, our King of Kings. His mortal claims to kingship are due to both his earthly parents being descendants of King David, for it was prophesied by Samuel that one of David's descendants would rule over God's everlasting kingdom. Like David, this Messiah would be a shepherd king who would save Israel. Even before Jesus' conception, the angel Gabriel told Mary, He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David." And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Following his birth, Jesus was recognized by the wise men from the east and by Anna the prophetess as the fulfillment of Samuel's prophecy. However, he was unlike any king who had come before. The Old Testament kings were leaders of nations, often warrior kings who led their people in battle and administer kings who oversaw the running of the state. 
Most kings eventually ran afoul of God in some way, usually because of their sinless acts. For example, we read that when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God. And others were simply wicked, like King Noah, who encouraged priestcraft and put Abinadi to death. In fact, many of us, especially in this country, have been conditioned to dislike and mistrust the idea of a king. Yet as we search for exemplar kings who were in the image of the Savior, we need look no further than King Benjamin. Not only was he a just ruler who seemed to care little for his own aggrandizement, but he was also a genuine servant king who cared for his people, worked alongside them, and taught them to serve each other. If you'll allow me to quote from Mosiah 2, Verses 16 through 19, of course, I'm sure all of you will recognize this. This is King Benjamin speaking to his people. I think this shows the kind of king that up until that point exemplified the servant king. Behold, I say unto you, because I said unto you that I had spent my days in your service, I do not desire to boast, for I have only been in the service of God. And behold, I tell you these things that ye may learn wisdom, that ye may learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. Behold, ye have called me your king, and if I, whom ye call your king, do labor to serve you, then ought ye not to labor to serve one another. And behold, also, if I, whom ye call your king, who has spent his days in your service, and yet has been in the service of God, do merit any thanks from you, oh, how you ought to thank your heavenly king. The notion of a servant king was perfected in the Lord. Indeed, he often resisted the title of king during his mortal ministry. The Gospel of John reports, after miraculously feeding the multitude, Jesus perceived that the people who had witnessed his miracles would come and take him by force and make him a king, so he departed. He also would not give Pilate or Herod the satisfaction of indicting him for the seditious act of designating himself king of the Jews. He told Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. Then when Pilate asked him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. The Savior understood his role. He was tasked with teaching the people a new covenant and with the atonement, the ultimate sacrifice, to bring mankind back from a fallen state into the presence of the Father. He was already a king, so there was no need to be given the title. Even to those who knew of his divine kingship, it must have been confusing because his mortal life represented the humble nature of his sovereignty. Recall that the Old Testament was understood by many as prophesying a Messiah who would be king, and this king was to deliver the people from conquest and the physical suffering they endured at the hands of their rulers. Instead, Jesus, who had authority over the entire world, turned the notion of a messianic king on its head. He was born in a stable. He traveled not with soldiers but with fishermen and tax collectors. He dined with Samaritans and sat down with the poor and downtrodden. Not only did he refuse all earthly treasures that kings tended to receive, but he also showed the people a humble king entering Jerusalem on a donkey, as was prophesied. He did not come to Jerusalem for a rich royal feast, but to preside over a humble meal with his friends, even washing the feet of those in attendance. The mistake made by many was assuming a warrior king when the Savior came as a shepherd king and a servant king. 
His sovereignty was not demonstrated by temporal wealth or political conquest, but by his victory over death and the freedom for mankind that this entailed. We await his triumphant return that will usher in the new millennium. His kingdom shall be fulfilled and he will reign as king over the millennial earth. As we are taught in the Doctrine and Covenants, for the Lord shall be in their midst and his glory shall be upon them and he will be their king and their lawgiver. In closing, let me quote from President Monson from a recent general conference. He asked the following, Who is the king of glory, this Lord of hosts? He is our master. He is our savior. He is the son of God. He is the author of our salvation. He beckons, follow me. He instructs, go and do thou likewise. He pleads, keep my commandments. It's my desire that all of us may get to know the Savior better, including his role as the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Recall that we use several names for for the Savior. We call him the Son of God. We call him the Bread of Life. We call him Emmanuel. We call him the Anointed One. We call him our Savior. We call him Jehovah. But I'd like to emphasize his role, another role that he serves, and that is of our friend. I was mistaken in the conclusion I drew from the dream I discussed earlier. He is my friend. But just like with all close and precious friendships, it takes effort on my part to get to know the Savior better and to appreciate all that he does for me, for my family, and for the world, and of course for all of you. I offer testimony that it is to him that we owe our lives and the promise of full potential as noble children of Heavenly Father. May we love and honor him always. I leave these words with you in his sacred name. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Stand with Christ with thoughts from Barbara A. Heisey, Marilyn S. Bateman, and John P. Hoffman. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.